This is the Case.Report. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again in our PEM resource room. So in this one, Mo speaks to Stephen and Rachel, and the team help us to identify the sick neonate. Spoiler alert, group B streptococcus is something we don't want to miss as a pathogen. But with a focused history, we can prevent this from happening. We also have a great adult in the room this month to give the team a hot debrief afterwards. So listen all the way through. Right, so we're back in TCRED. We're in the PED section today. Steve is on the morning shift. As soon as Rachel came in, he's just like, oh, thank God you're here. Wrecked from the morning. It's been swinging all day. So he's run off to fetch himself a coffee. Two, three minutes after Steve heads off down the corridor to fetch himself a coffee, one of the triage nurses calls you over, Rachel. She's got a five-day-old baby in the triage room. She's worried about the baby. You know, doesn't look great. The cry doesn't sound great just doesn't look right what are you going to do first of all i'm going to ask the nurse what she's worried about with him not looking right and as i'm asking her we'll be making our way down to Risa's or not to Risa's to triage because that's where that's where the wee baby is i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> um, <laughs> and to go down and actually review the child and see what's going on and get a quick history and kind of eyeball him you know get the old end of bedogram perfect so you pop into the triage room baby rocky is there with mom and dad and they look very anxious they're very worried waiting for you to have a look at Rocky and you have a look at him. He's still in the car seat, all wrapped up. It's sitting there fairly quiet. The nurse fills you in on triage history so far. Parents brought Rocky to the hospital because they're having trouble feeding him and is only having a couple of wet nappies a day. Um, I suppose if he's in triage, you would have hoped that he would have had some obs done. So you're going to ask the triage nurse what his obs are going to be like. Okay, so he's got a heart rate of 190, sats of 94 and has a cap refill time of four seconds, temp of 34.5. Okay, so I don't particularly like, I know he's a neonate, so we'd expect him to run at a faster heart rate than say an older child or an adult, but I still don't like that heart rate of 190 and also that cap refill of four seconds. I am worried about him and I do think we should probably move him to recess. You know, at that point, maybe get a brief history from mum and dad uh, just to see, you know, can we dig down a little bit deeper as to what's going on? Feeding issues like this wouldn't set off a heart rate of 190 anyways. Yeah, your triage nurse fully, fully agrees with you. Thinks, yeah, absolutely, this kid needs to be in recess. So she starts making her way down to recess to let the recess nurses know of the patient they've got incoming. So while the recess bay is being prepared, the triage nurse also gives Stephen a shout, who's only just got the cup of coffee in his hand and he's being called back to recess to help you out with the patient. You're getting everything ready for IV access and and to assess the patient. Steve takes a quick history from the parents. Yeah, so thanks for the coffee break there, Rachel. Um, I needed that one. Yeah, you're very welcome. uh, (laughs) Sorry for letting it short. (laughs) Definitely needed it. So basically they were quite concerned when they got him home. So he'd been initially breastfeeding quite well, doing three early feeds, latching for about 30 minutes, seemed to be getting better at it before he went home. But over the past few days, 
he's been disimproving. So the main thing they were quite concerned about was that he was quite breathless while feeding and they had tried to alternate positions, but it just didn't seem to be making much of a difference. So he continued to struggle for the past few days. Of note, what they were concerned really was that his nappies were quite infrequent. There's a sort of pink discharge within the nappies over the past few days as well. As far as things go, he's quite an unwell little chap. What she reports is that when she was pregnant with Rocky was that her obstetrics team was quite worried about him having a low birth weight. Other thing of note, and I don't know how much of an interest this might be to you, just as flag it, is that she grew a swab that apparently had an infection but that it wasn't treated. So it might be one to kind of keep an eye on in the background. He was born at 37 plus 3 by normal spontaneous vaginal delivery but that the waters had broken the day before at that time she was unwell in that she had a fever she was given antibiotics around the time of labor but during labor apparently labor seemed to be fairly unremarkable he cried after he was born but the mom and dad didn't get to hold him straight away as he was reviewed by peds um, obviously in the resuscitator. When he was checked over, apparently his weight was seven pounds, 10 ounces. So he was not a low birth weight baby at all. And they seemed to be fairly quite chuffed with him at that stage. The only thing about the feeding is just to kind of go back was that she did have some difficulty in breastfeeding him before going home, but the cause wasn't necessarily clear. Now, she'd been seen by midwives at the point in time, seeing as it was her first child, just to try and help get through things. And they had kind of advised her, look, if there's still ongoing issues, you always have the public health nurse to go back to. So that's effectively where we're at. So we kind of know he's a few risk factors from his antenatal and then sort of postnatal stage too. Hearing all that, Rachel, what's going through your head right now? You know, the kid's in recess now, you're getting all the monitors on him. What's going through your head? Is there anything in particular you're worried about? The number one thing, and it's the, the swab and the antibiotics around the time of delivery is what's kind of sending alarm bells for me is potentially group B strep, which can be quite common in this age group, particularly, you know, in kind of higher income countries as well. You know, so she did have a swab. She's not sure what she grew on it. But the thing that you're most likely going to be swabbed for in pregnancy is for group B strep. And also she got antibiotics too. So there was obviously a concern from the obstetric side. I suppose just to kind of boil it down, it's infection. Yeah, oh yeah, infection, 100%. Uh, neonatal sepsis is what we're very, very worried about, but group E strep is definitely up there as the, you know, one of the more likely pathogens, I suppose, given that history, or one that we'd be quite concerned about. We have them in resus. We have the resuscitator warmed up. As we were saying, myself and the nurse were setting up for a line in that, which uh, Stephen is going to kindly help us out with because you know tiny little babies have tiny little veins and we get set up for bloods do our full septic screen while steve's doing that line you're assessing the baby then so in terms of examination what are you looking at and what do you find we're going to be going quite systemic with this baby do a full head-to-toe examination but obviously still you want to make sure that he's warm which is why we throw resuscitator hair warmed up so i want to look at how he appears generally does he look like he's kind of bright and alert and then as well so with babies they have the soft spots the fontanelles does it appear to be sunken or is it bulging and then again you know moving down looking at his respiratory effort looking at his rate of breathing as well and then again with the issues with the bowels and stuff just a quick abdominal examination and as i said checking his tone and stuff later on down as well as part of his full kind of head-to-toe examination and obviously not forgetting to auscultate for any murmurs or anything as well. Perfect. So you've done a really thorough, comprehensive examination of Rocky and what what have you found? So he looks quite lethargic. He's a little bit jaundiced in appearance and he's quite quiet. He does have a sunken fontanelle, kind of depressed down, which I'm concerned about. No real sclerolicturus or anything. Nothing kind of in his mouth that would be of any concern 
with any feeding issues such as like a tongue tie or any newborn teeth. He does look like he's breathing rapidly with some recessions as well on inspiration. But he does have good air entry with no evidence of any crackles or creps and no any extra heart sounds or murmurs on oscillations over his heart. So, and then moving down kind of to his abdomen and checking his pulses and that, it's soft, no hepatosplenomegaly evident at all. His femoral pulses are palpable, but they're a bit thready, so I'm worried about that. And as we're keeping him warm and, um, you know, take off his nappy, does it look like there's a good amount of urine in it or what's it like and it's quite it's only lightly stained and there's no obvious anogenital abnormalities and then just kind of moving down doing a quick neurological assessment was checking his tone he's quite listless and he is responsive to his reflex testing and he does have a weak cry with that and then while we're stripped doing neurological assessment we get a quick weight he is a newborn and he hasn't been feeding too well so he would have lost some weight in the coming days and it's important to get an up-to-date weight while rachel's doing that assessment and you're bearing that history that you got from mum in mind rocky is a five-day-old neonate mum had some sort of infection he's now symptomatic with something that looks like some sort of an infection is lethargic isn't feeding well and all those exam findings you know very lethargic seems like he might be dehydrated quite an unwell kid so can you tell me what's going through your head now and what you're going to do next to start sort of optimizing his care yeah sure enough so like i mean it's you, you don't just take feeding as being the primary issue you take it as he's an infection he's a neonate so he's likely symptomatic gps infection and you're gonna have to treat him as a neonatal sepsis so really it's just moving forward with the ABCs like we've just done with Rachel on the septic screen to kind of optimize that. So as far as I recollect, the SATs were 94. So you may consider, depending on what guideline you use, to give him some oxygen either by a nasal cannula and maybe look at giving a bolus of fluids just through that IV line you managed to cite. And you're probably going to look at, say, a 10 per kilo, depending on if you feel he's shocked or not. And that might increase to a 10 mil. As far as kind of going forward then goes... You know, for those of us who don't often work in peds, you might end up looking at the kind of guidelines that exist around how to manage these kids because they're a hell of a lot different to that, what it is working with adults. So the nice guidelines then are often always really good to rely on in terms of the fever five. So you've got access to, you know, doing your FBC where the chest x-ray may be concerned as well as doing like an LP. And unfortunately for Rocky, it sounds like an LP may end up being the next part and parcel of his position. So I'd imagine at this point, you're going to have to talk to the parents about the next set of procedures which is apart from the line doing the LP in the urine to kind of get those extra steps as part of that full you know septic screen picture ideally you want to get that done before you uh, give antibiotics but say you're having trouble getting urine or having trouble getting an lp what would you do so i think just to go back if we haven't given the bolus you're going to give them at least a fluid bolus at the very least to at least try and stabilize them if you're not succeeding with the lp you're probably looking at a kid who's very sick so you're going to need to look at escalating this beyond just us as em so you're probably talking about the logics of PICU if it's available in the department to try and access you know kind of more definitive management because that's ultimately where he's going to end up end up you know we're just there as kind of the the interim i suppose the question is are you going to delay antibiotics no i mean if you can't get access to this stuff you're going to just treat him as and then have to move forward from there so you're going to rely on the guidelines in terms of what antibiotics you're going to give so as far as what's typically given is just kefataxim and amoxicillin and if you feel that there's other kind of agents involved then you may add up add in extra cover in the form of say gentamicin acyclovir or maybe even vank but it depends upon where you feel the source is obviously with rocky we're now considering say a group b strep so amoxicillin 
and cefotaxime are probably appropriate. Digentamycin maybe, but I don't think we're dealing with more of an E. coli because it's GBS. The further two should be sufficient for them, you know. Your local antimicrobial guidance will guide you appropriately in that uh, in that regard. For us here in Ireland, that's uh, the Children's Health Ireland formulary. So yeah, absolutely look that up. Rachel, when Stephen's, you know, he's a dab hand at all this stuff, got his line in, he's got the bloods off, got the LP samples. What do you want him to um, send those samples for? So I suppose with the CSF sample from the lumbar puncture, you want to get your microscopy on that, also with your cultures and sensitivity, as well with those with every CSF sample, you want to get a glucose level as well as proteins, plus your viral and bacterial PCR just to see if anything does show up on that. Make sure that you're going down the right line with the treatment. And obviously when you're doing your glucose levels on your LP, you want to check your glucose levels of the actual child at the same time as well. You're sending your CSF with a porter. It's important to remember not to send it into the chute because that can open up a whole other kettle of worms. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've talked about our antibiotic choices there, which is great. While Stephen's off looking for someone to bring his samples to the lab, you go back and have another look at Rocky and see how he's doing. How's he looking now, Rachel? Rocky, I think his cap refill has improved to three seconds. He's still quite lethargic looking and I'm still quite worried about him. Continue on down the route that we were talking to and maybe going down to pick you because, you know, we have kind of flagged that this is an ENA that is very unwell and he could potentially go downhill very fast. But he has thankfully improved with that bolus and he's starting to pick up a little bit after the antibiotics too. Rachel, between yourself and myself, we decided to see how Rocky gets on. As you know ourselves, our job's fairly difficult to see. But we were curious enough to look up his case. So he did have quite a long stay in NICU that was complicated by a hydrocephalus. But we decided to take a trip quickly upstairs to the Peds ward where you find him. So he's upstairs feeding with his mum. He's gaining weight and reassuringly the nurses say that he hasn't suffered too many severe complications from his GBS meningitis which was what the PEDS team had been treating him as. Despite this though and it is quite clear his developmental course is going to be monitored quite closely seeing as he's fairly sick so we are hoping for the future that this little fella is going to recover and hopefully rebound from where he's come from. Very well managed. Tricky case. Very tricky to get. Taxing cases right at the start of the shift for you Rachel or you know just when you're trying to get away for a little bit Stephen. But that always tends to be when they happen, isn't it? Rachel, do you want to talk us through, I suppose, your approach to managing sick baby in general? As I kind of mentioned during the case, it's, you know, it's highly important to get a good history, particularly with these ones of the antenatal history as well, because there might be a little nugget of information there that helps you go down a particular route. So say in Rocky's case, where he had, where his mum had the swab that grew a bug and she got antibiotics around the time of that. So that's the little extra things that you wouldn't ask for in an adult. You're not, you're not going to ask a 70 something year old if their mother had any issues during her pregnancy. Not an ED. I'm sure some inpatient specialties will dig down into it. Yeah. If you've seen the Dr. Gotham second video, it would be, it'd be ID anyways. The thing is, you really want to see what their baseline is like, because when they go off their baseline, that's when problems can occur. So I suppose with Rocky, you know, he had issues with feeding all along. He kind of had briefly picked up 
but then he went off kind of downhill again. Urine output, their nappies, how often they're being changed, what it looks like, are they as heavy as they normally are, like any changes to their bowel movements, any change in the consistency, again in the frequency, any change from their baseline really. As I'd mentioned kind of during the case, particularly with the newborns, you know, they can lose weight in the first couple of days, which they do rapidly regain back. You need to chart that, you need to go based on their centile chart. So if they've dropped two centile points on their growth chart, then that could be a sign that there's something, an issue going on in the background. And again, like going back to their baseline, are they off form or are they kind of more irritable than usual or just, you know, parents saying that they're not right? Or as the triage nurse had said here, you know, this child like just doesn't look right. And then, you know, there's family history. So there's conditions that run in families that would be important to know about, particularly, you know, metabolic conditions that people may not survive to a longer period of time, but that may only become evident at you know, in the newborn stage. Um, And there is a higher incidence of them in Ireland as well. And as well, it's very important with, you know, with these neonates, you know, they haven't had time to build up their immune system yet. So have they had any sick contacts? Like you hear time and time again of kids getting a caregiver who has a herpes virus and ends up giving it to to the child and, you know, devastating effects. So it's important to know about their sick contacts. So just kind of on that note, I suppose, something that I picked up during my PEM training is uh, the misfits i know it's a save that you guys are probably familiar with already it's just sort of a to work through a differential of you know the critically ill infant and what might be going on with them so the so th and e are trauma heart disease and endocrine then misfits so m is for metabolic i inborn errors of metabolism s for sepsis f for formula i for intestinal t for toxins and S for seizures. There's a really good Corian page that kind of goes through each different one of those, I suppose, subheadings and kind of goes through what exactly you can you can, you can look at in that sort of area. Might help you explore your differentials for a critically ill infant. Um, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. Moving on to examination, Steve, what kind of things are you looking for in the exam? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think half the battle in trying to, as you know, this Mo is trying to expose these kids and get them examined in the first place. So it's either distraction or bribery can sometimes win. I think one of the best things I've learned from pediatrics is that being able to just observe is probably one of the best things. And I've had a, plenty of consultants who would have insisted on that in just standing by watching how they are, pallor, their appearance and their interactions. And then the kind of the next thing and I've met a lot of good doctors who've often done this as distractibility to try and gain that sense of rapport nearly with the infant because even though they're only infants they're still very reluctant to engage so half the battle is trying to get that so you can then start to examine examine them sequentially and it's always going to be a head-to-toe exam like what Rachel went through when we examined them initially you know it's examining from top to toe but obviously having to expose given the fact that say Rocky who's only a five day old his body temperature management is going to be fairly inconsistent so you're going to need to expose but warm expose and warm and that way you're getting what you need without obviously worsening his position but as i say i think it's a it's a bit of a fine fine art and being able to achieve what you're looking for without making that baba um, fairly upset so it's an art to it i think and just talking specifically about sepsis and fever rachel 
it's kind of a contentious area in small kitties. I suppose, who do we screen? You're always going to be concerned in those that are less than three months of age. As I'd mentioned earlier on, like they haven't had a time to build up their immune system yet. And they also haven't started getting any of their vaccines yet. You start getting your first vaccine at three months. Those ones in particular that you're really, really having red flags for are those that are less than 28 days old. Any fevers in any of them, straight away, they're going to be getting a lumbar puncture and the full septic screen if they have a fever. Um, because it's just not normal to be getting fevers in that age group you know and as well with in the case of with Rocky you know he appeared unwell so that's obviously another big red flag you know you can have kind of those early onset sepsis and late onset sepsis in the, in the neonatal stage. On the topic of fever before we move on from it we went into this ad nauseum on our very first PEM episode back in the day um, with Anna and Tig. if you want to go back and listen to that but yeah tell us about you know what exactly is early onset sepsis and what's late onset sepsis so the early onset sepsis is that that occurs within kind of 24 to 48 hours of life and then the later onset sepsis begins at after 72 hours so rocky's five days old so he's greater than 72 hours so he's more kind of triggering for the late onset sepsis and there are different bacterias and you know pathogens that can cause neurosepsis depending on when it happens in terms of when you're in life. So like your early onset sepsis, and these are often from pathogens that could be in utero or crossed like when they're passing through the cervix that they could have gotten through their oral mucosal membranes. And that's your thing like listeria, your E. coli, your GBS and the groupie strep. There's also risk factors within the antenatal history. So if there's any history of chorioamnionitis, if the mother has been colonized with groupie strep, if there are premature deliveries, so at less than 37 weeks and if there's a prolonged rupture of membranes we usually they kind of say over 18 to 24 hours and then your late onset sepsis the pathogens from that are usually more so from um, transmission from the surrounding environment with there can be an element of vertical transmission but again it's more likely from the, the surrounding environment and again those preterm neonates they're usually at higher risk of developing infection and um, because of the deficiency of those IgG antibodies you know and they have that immature epithelial barrier acts as your natural protection and there's also potential that if they're quite premature they'll be, they'll be getting lines and NG tubes and that so that increases the you know, foreign bodies going in increases the chance of any pathogens piggybacking in on them there. So Steve, tell me about group B strep and neonatal sepsis. No problem. So it is fairly important. And as I've said, we've kind of had to really keep an, keep an eye on it as a pathogen. So it's probably one of the most common causes for early neonatal sepsis in infants. And interestingly enough, in Ireland, it's something we've also had to keep an eye on too. However, the numbers that's been reported back in 2022 are demonstrating that it's actually improving. So as far as that goes, its prevalence doesn't seem to be as significant is what you'd expect. That being said, though, it is something we need to always remember and you always need to kind of look for the risk factors for them. So as far as Rocky goes, and he's a very good case in this regard, is whether the mum had an antenatal screen that was positive for a GBS, whether the infant or baby in this case was less than 37 weeks, that being a preterm baby. Say with Rocky, then there was a demonstration of um, rupture of membranes. So whether there was a prolonged rupture, whether there was preterm, pre-labor rupture. The other thing always to bear in mind is if there was temperatures above 38 and obviously then uh, evidence of inter- am- amniotic infection so say where Rocky's mom she's given IV antibiotics. Inter- 
interestingly enough, um, having a sibling that was born with GBS disease seems to be a risk factor as well. I'd imagine that might be just environmental. But again, it's nice to know that there's always, you know, kind of familial risks. Yeah, that is interesting. It is actually from that regard. So always just to kind of expand your horizons. As far as kind of managing GBS goes, though, is that so we've just spoken about it here, you know, trying to give anti- IV antibiotics is, try, is an attempt to reduce the risk of, anti- of early neonatal sepsis. That is the infections. But interestingly enough, it reduces the risk of early GBS infection, but doesn't have any impact on late onset. So I guess the higher risk pregnancies do need to be identified so you can try and at least ameliorate the early risk. As far as kind of beyond and into the future goes, you know, vaccines are obviously becoming a bigger um, push as far as medicine goes. And I think the WHO at the moment are pushing to try and have a maternal GBS vaccine such that you manage to completely eradicate the risk both in early and late, which would be an ideal given the impact that GBS can have on neonates. As far as kind of how it presents though, and I guess this is always something to be aware of, is that that early onset sepsis from groupy strep usually does occur within the first say 24 hours and it is vertical transmission that being from the mother to the child either by in utero or else say during birth so the thing the conditions that are often present say with rocky here he was a neonatal sepsis but he did have evidence of developing a hydrocephalus so he may have had meningitis on top of it but they can also develop pneumonia concurrently as far as signs go so i don't as like we always say you know babies are not adults so their symptoms are extremely varied so respiratory symptoms being tired being irritable and having feeding difficulties like with rocky are fairly much the norm in terms of how they present but as far as the late, late onset goes it's considered safe from around the seventh day of life now late onset sepsis is obviously after 72 hours but there is quite a prolonged period by which it can present how it can present is very very much the same and that's very non-specific so you have to i guess have a kind of a rational thought process about whether or not this may be a case in later onset and if there's risk factors that still need to be considered but it seems that the early is the mainstay for when it decides to rock up okay all right just before we wrap up rachel do you want to give us a Quick summary, I suppose, of what the key takeaways from from the case and from the discussion would be. Summary number one is, or point number one, you know, listen to your nurses. If they're worried about sick kids, you better listen. Number two is your approach to an unwell neonate where you're concerned with a sepsis, like you need to try, treat it aggressively, hit it hard as soon as possible. Um, and that senior, man, senior input specialists from the likes of say like pick you or NICU is vital with these and even just senior input from within the department yeah like, yeah you know, you're a consultant um, as well yeah of course absolutely and then as well so rocky as we said he kind of non-specific issues and kind of presented an issue the parents were more concerned concerned about feeding difficulties you know someone could easily have been triaged as feeding difficulties we'll see them further down the line and potentially develop you know worsening sepsis and not have as, as good an outcome as Rocky. So just to kind of keep in the back of your mind, feeding difficulties could be something else more sinister going on in the background as well. You know, regardless of how sick they are, any kid that's that young should be seen by senior just to make sure that there's nothing being missed. Like you said, it can be fairly innocuous as an initial present, presenting complaint, but the kids can be quite sick. Like what Rachel just said, I always think involving seniors early is probably one of the 
the most important things you can do because you know especially from for us as say just pure emergency medicine specialists that work say whether you're in Crumlin or Temple Street you know we wouldn't have that sort of nuance or cork exactly or cork I better put cork in there otherwise I will be in trouble no I think you better <laughs> <laughs> to be fair though I think that's half the battle is especially if we're not if we ourselves have concerns to have that escalation to know that there's always that backup there because you know say for instance for us who've worked out in regional centres when you do have kids kids who come in that are that ill you know you're looking at definitive management and where the definitive treatment's going to be sourced from and sometimes that might be just outside of the hospital that you're working in so i think having that sort of thought process to at least preempt that is always key especially if they're say going to be transport delays and stuff you know having the discussion with with colleagues too in the form of having others involved within it is also key you know like we spoke about the case where i was just off the back of doing a set of nights rachel was the first one in you know you have to have that sometimes having that mindset of having two people together collectively may just be the way to kind of make sure you weren't missing anything especially in a context like this yeah it's it's important not to make that i suppose mistake of trying to manage everything on your own you know if you got a pre-alert for a sick adult you wouldn't just say ah no i don't need uh, any any help and resource you know you you get someone in to get, give you a hand you'd have a team leader and sure you'd have other people working on the patient but it's important that just because the patient's smaller doesn't mean you need a smaller team i would argue you probably even need a bigger team yeah yeah, very, very, very likely. Very likely. Well done, everyone. That was fantastic. So we will wrap up here and get this over to our adult in the room and see what they think of our work. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Rachel. I sat down with Dr. Rasha Sawaya, PEM consultant at CHI, who really helped me to get to grips with group B streptococcus as our adult in the room. She also speaks to us about feeding problems in the newborn, which is obviously a really common presentation to the department, but is a hugely wide differential. I actually promised I wouldn't listen to the first recording of this initially, but ended up glued to my headphones. At the end, Dr. Sawaya also gives some great advice to those transitioning to a more senior role within a paediatric emergency department, whether that's at a registrar or a consultant level. Well worth the listen. Hi, thanks guys for having me here. It was really fun to listen to the podcast and um, now to be the representing the adult in the room, though really I'm constantly learning from you, supposedly juniors. Um, but again, thanks for having me on. So S- Stephen and Rachel, you really did an excellent job with this kid. I really wouldn't have done much better in the best of institutions. Um, it's just unfortunate that we still see quite some GBS uh, in 2023, with even with all the antenatal care available. Other than the risk of mortality from sepsis, as you noted, morbidity is also quite high, like this um, Rocky who developed the hydrocephalus, and that puts them at risk of seizures later on and other problems with hydrocephalus. In fact, the mortality of early onset GBS is around 1% to 3% in term infants. Um, Interestingly, to my knowledge, the U.S. differs from Ireland in the recommendations for GBS screening. For example, everyone there gets a culture antenatally. Here it's an option. There's three options you can do, one of them uh, mainly risk-based certification rather than just pan-culturing everybody. And I wondered if that impacts the GBS rates, but I was looking it up and really the HSC guidelines uh, report the Irish-UK rates and they're around 0.57 per thousand. And the CDC, which is the US ones, are 0.2 cases per thousand. Okay, you can say it's a bit less, but I don't think that's a significant uh, difference. And 
the other important thing to note is all this antenatal screening only impacts the early onset GBS, doesn't impact late onset, which doesn't come from vertical transmission. So what is early and what is late? These are the two times uh, GBS presents in uh, infants and was mentioned uh, by Stephen before. But early onset is, per the HSC and CDC guidelines, it happens in the first seven days of life, not just the 72 hours. And although it's most commonly the first 24 hours of life, late onset is seven days to three months. And um, after three months, it'd be extremely rare, except if you're a preemie and you've uh, been admitted to the hospital and have other risk factors. The ones you'll see in the emergency department would mostly be the late onset, except obviously Rocky was more of an early onset since he was in the first uh, seven days of life. So back to Rocky. Other than, yes, he's a baby who had GBS, what really um, this case reminds me of talking about is the sick versus the not sick infant. Uh, Rocky didn't present as a clinical conundrum to me of the, well, febrile baby, um, is he actually sick? Is he not sick? What do I do? What's the evidence behind all that? Uh, he's really recognized as a sick baby. And Rachel did that very well, and the nurse did that very well. And they did, in the beginning, they noticed, okay, he's he's poorly perfused, he's off, something's uh, going on. And it is still scary because, yes, they're fragile. Their baby's reserves are is extremely poor. And if they've arrived to the point that you're seeing them sick, it's pretty bad. And I'm just going to stress about, is it going to be a difficult IV? Is it going to be a difficult intubation? Will he respond to my treatment or not? So those are kind of the questions that I'll be asking myself. Uh, another point to make, and I think is that we often doubt ourselves. As human beings, we are always hopeful, especially with babies in the PZD. Most of the babies do fine. Um, but if you see a sick baby, fits checks those boxes in your book of what fits a sick baby. And in this case, Rocky had poor perfusion, had hypoxia, hypothermia, um, listless, those are enough to t trust to tell yourself he's sick and trust yourself. Even though we want him to be better, he's not. So do what needs to be done and do it fast. Everything can be stopped afterwards. If he responds, okay, you gave him fluids, you can stop him. You gave him antibiotics, those can be stopped. It's okay. It's better to do them now than to do them later if you've identified that sick baby. And plans can be changed. It's okay. When new data comes in, new labs, reassessments, new information, you can change uh your management, that's all right. Another thing I want to emphasize here when talking about the sick baby is, yes, he fits the checkbox, but as we all know, babies are a little bit tricky. And you really need to examine hundreds of normal babies to be able to recognize that sick one, the, var the variation, and avoid overcalling the well one. Infants are true individuals, each with their own set of normal. And the more normal you examine, the easier it will be for you to spot the abnormal findings. So don't shy away in the ED from the boring chief complaint of a newborn. Pick every single one you can on shift as you're training, because really that's what's going to allow you to recognize the sick one. Babies breathe funny. That's normal. They naturally breathe faster than we do. They have big bellies that may look like they're retracting. But no, that's not a retracting belly. And it's only when you're seeing so many of them that you will recognize which one is the retracting one. What is the grunting noise? What is the head bobbing look like in a newborn? Um, also, their abdomen is big. That doesn't mean it's distended. You need to get used to seeing all these different bellies to recognize which is the actual distended one that you'd worry about. Their skin is funky. They have weird spots and rashes. They have baseline motley, motley skin, 
skin, especially if it's cold. And again, these can all be normal. And it's only when you're seeing more and more of these that you recognize the abnormal. I know I'm repeating myself, but really it's an important point. Their tone is naturally weaker than the adult. They vomit all the time. Well, they really reflux, but that's also normal. They sleep all the time. That's part of uh, their job as they grow. So the point is, don't worry if you're not seeing a lot of super sick babies in your training. I know you want to, you will see a handful, but make sure that you're examining a lot of well babies so that when the sick one comes in, you won't miss it. And then your mental algorithms will kick in. Don't worry about that. So back to Rocky. Yes, the prenatal, uh, when we're kind of initially assessing him, we're going to want the prenatal history, the acute history, physical exam, etc. But honestly, when I'm first seeing him sick, the prenatal history is not what I would uh, waste my time on. First, I'm stabilizing. Uh, in infants, especially sick babies with a vague history, they have sepsis until proven otherwise, irrespective of uh, the risk factors. That's what I want to think about. And then I'm going through my mental checklist. So we have infection, we have cardiac trauma, metabolic. Rocky was hypothermic, hypoxic, poorly perfused. The heart rate was mentioned at 190. I wouldn't stress about that. Uh, it can easily go up to 200 pulse, goes up to 205 as normal, APLS, I think, up to 180. Those are still within normal in the newborn. But everything else is off in this baby. He was listless on the exam, uh, poorly perfused, as we mentioned. So, Rachel and uh, Stephen, you did right. You stabilized, put the IV axis, gave the first temper kilo and as polis and started antibiotics. There's no need to overthink it there. Get the cultures if you can before the antibiotics. Get the catheterized urine to save time. It's more accurate and don't have to sit and wait for a baby to pee. And the LP will probably have to wait till Rocky looks a bit better. I mean, I've done LPs in very sick babies, uh, but you have to be really super fast and kind of get it done. We do CSFPCRs here and they're quite accurate even after one or two doses of antibiotics uh, and letting us know if there was a meningitis or not. Uh, once this is done, ideally someone else is getting uh, history while you're doing it or you get it done and then you can quickly get a bit more history from the parents. So again, what matters to me in the history? Of course, one would think that the more details, the better. But in reality, when you're dealing with a sick kid, like any sick patient in the ED, you have to stay focused. And truthfully, I like to avoid brain overload. Uh, so I believe, again, you hear me talk a lot about checklists, kind of you have all these mental checklists. First, I'm going to ask about, did mom get any prenatal care? And if she did, then I have my list of questions. And if there was a term delivery or preterm. If mom did get prenatal care, I'm going to ask about maternal infections. Uh, I would ask about the swabs, like was uh, mentioned uh, here with uh, Rocky's mom, any lesions, also kind of mentioned in the podcast, uh, to think of um, herpes, any other STDs one has to think about, and uh, drug use. Other things to ask about is any prenatal ultrasound, was there any cardiac anomalies noted, or renal, like hydrocephalus, uh, sorry, <laughs> hydronephrosis, and was the delivery simple, complicated, if it was a C-section, fine. Was there a specific reason for it or not? Was it prolonged, prolonged rupture of membrane? All these things that can put the baby at risk of, um, uh, depending on what it was, infections, or if it was complicated, there's a lot of bleeding, severe anemia or other. And then finally, is there a NICU stay and what was it for? Oftentimes, baby may go for less than 24 hours, a bit of oxygen for TTN, that's less of a risk factor than they were in the NICU for antibiotics or on, or on CPAP or BAPAP or um, anything else. 
And then what I'm looking for um, with all this is basically risk factors for infection, cardiac, uh, metabolic, or any other syndromes. Other than the prenatal history, we also ask about the family history, which was done here. Um, siblings, anyone previously sick at this uh, after birth, any babies may have died. We don't know what, why. That means we think of metabolic or cardiac uh, diseases. And yes, sick contacts are important, but really it's more kind of for viral infections or yes, if they had someone with lesions around the mouth kissing the baby, but a bit less helpful, I would th say, in this case. And then a bit more subtle information to try to get is the social context. Um, again, was there drug use, no drug use, who lives with this baby, um, who um, taking, uh, taking care of the single mom, is there support or not? Non-accidental trauma can be very subtle and difficult to pinpoint in babies, uh, but unfortunately, it always has to stay in the back of your mind. So I was asked to comment on feeding problems. Yes, that's also my least favorite chief complaint. And why? Because like you, I it can go from nothing to be something really bad. And it's kind of, you have to try to tease it out. If the baby's looking sick, yes, again, easy. They're looking sick, whether they had a bit of feeding problems or not, it's less important. It matters more in the well-appearing one who's presenting with the chief complaint of feeding problems. Um, I must say, in Ireland, I would uh, be a bit more kind of concerned if someone presents with feeding problems, so a small infant, because there's quite good access to public health nurses here, and they're monitored closely. So if, so if they've sent them to the ED, it'll kind of uh, make me wor pay attention a bit more. Is there something I'm missing on this baby? Uh, feeding. So it's the main activity of infants. As adults, we go to work, we exercise. If we're not feeling very well, we sit in bed. Babies, basically, they eat. And if they don't have energy, if they're not feeling well, eating is what they will stop doing or they won't do well. Um, and I think Rachel mentioned this already. Baseline is key in babies. What is their baseline? What was Rocky's baseline? What was his normal eating habits and normal activity in terms of his pattern of sleeping and wakefulness? Again, in a five-day-old, it's a bit tricky. Um, the problem with the first baby first is that, um, one, there's probably the parents aren't used to having babies and they don't know what a newborn may be, may have to eat or look like or what their sleeping patterns is. But the other thing is also Rocky's just five days old. He probably hasn't gotten a baseline yet. He's, he's still growing. His feeding is still changing because you're actually in the first, um, week or so that urine output is increasing, the stooling is increasing, the feeds are increasing. So they, it doesn't really have a very good baseline, but you can still try to interpret from the parents what it is that is off. The other thing to pay attention to, uh, or that I always kind of am mindful of, is also a baby is a human being. We sometimes have good days, sometimes have bad days, and that's part of it. And I think it's the same thing for the baby. So when you're looking for a change from baseline, it also, for me, has to be um, kind of persistent change. Um, not just, oh, a one-off uh, abnormal feed. It has to be something which is persists a bit longer. And in a baby's life, longer may be just 12 hours to 24 hours. That may be enough to say this is a persistent change. So what are the questions we're going to look at in the feeding? What you're looking for is a drop in frequency or duration uh, or quantity. In breastfeeding babies, mainly because you can't see the quantity per se, you're going to ask the mom about how often they're going on the breast 
And if she's feeding more, her breasts are more congested. That means there's less of a letdown. The baby's not sucking as much. And typical breastfed ba uh, babies are eating every one and a half hour to two hours. It's more on demand. Um, breast milk takes, is faster uh, digested. That's why they eat more frequently. Formula, they're more every three to four hours. Um, and so the formula, you'll be able to ask about the quantity, how much is being uh, left in. But it's also important to pay attention to what should the baby be eating at their age in terms of quantity of formula. I, a quick thing, just look it up on, honestly, Google. You can see per age how much it should be because I don't expect you to necessarily remember it all the time. And then you're going to look at kind of consequences of not eating well. So that's urine output, bowel movements, and activity. Um, babies usually poo a few times a day. In the first days of life, is that liquidy uh, yellow poo? Um, and if for some reason they were pooing three, four times and now they're pooing once or none, there's something uh, maybe going on there that may reflect a decreased uh, oral intake. The urine output also, but you have to pay attention. As a newborn, they actually in the first days of life, they may not be peeing that much. That kind of quick rule I was uh, taught and I still follow is that for every day of life, you should have at least one wet diaper. And so one day of life one up to day of life seven, eight, you're eating the seven, uh, seven, eight diapers, which is pretty much at every feed. Um, so at this point, truck should be urinating at least five times a day. That would be kind of uh, the goal for a five-day-old. And then the activity. If he's just sleeping more, not willing to wake up, granted, is it a cause or a consequence? Not, maybe we may not always be sure in the beginning, but... Um, if he's dehydrated, not eating well, he's going to probably also be sleeping more or extremely fussy and inconsolable. And it's always important when you're saying fussy, I want to know, is he consolable or not? If he's consolable, that's fine. But the inconsolable is key there. Um, and then if you decided, yes, there is a drop in uh, the feeding, there's a change there, is it, and it has it's having consequences, why is it happening? Is it because simply the baby's a bit congested? There may need nasal uh, breathers. Does he, uh, he or she have bronchiolitis? Is that what, what's going on? Um, or is she getting fatigued, fatigued while eating, sweating, cyanose, going to make me think of something more cardiac? Or is it now that the baby's vomiting? And you have to here distinguish reflux from vomiting. Most babies have reflux. And um, it's kind of the spit out comes out just out of the mouth. And vomiting tends to be a change in that amount because being a bit more forceful, doesn't have to be the projectile uh, vomiting, but tends to be a bit more uh, amount and more frequent, not just after every feed, you have vomiting at different times. And then also you want to ask about the color of the vomit. Is it just the milk coming out or is it um, bilious vomiting? For me at this age, bilious would be green or like a dark yellow. I would also be concerned. And th at that point, I'm worried about some intestinal obstruction. Most commonly in this case would be vulvalis. Don't tell me polyxtenosis or intersusception at this age. The baby is way too young. Um, I've seen the youngest I've seen the susception would be three months of age. Pollock stenosis at around three, four weeks. You now we may diagnose them earlier and earlier uh, at that point, but five days is definitely too young. And oftentimes, what I need to do really when I'm trying to uh, distinguish reflux from vomiting from the parents, I have to actually mimic it and kind of show them it's coming out from the lips or, um, or something more of a vomit, and that's okay. So, again, what we're looking for is a pattern and a change within it and a persistent change, not just a one-off, as I mentioned. And finally, if you can't pinpoint really there's something abnormal, you still have to listen, listen to the parents. Even new, I know new parents may tend to be more stressed, 
but that does not diminish their concern. And they, after all, they're the ones who are with the baby 24-7 and know him or her the best. Um, and you will start getting it as the more babies and parents you're interacting with. Uh, you start seeing which is the parent who's really worried or the one who probably feels the baby's okay, just they did something a bit funky and they just want you to reassure them and they're okay with that versus the one that you just can't seem to convince. And then you have to stop and think, like, am I missing something? Listen again, reconsider your differential, your uh, decision-making. Um, ultimately, we're taking care of the patient together, you, the parents, the nurse, and everybody's opinion and gestalt matters, um, and you need to listen to that. And remember, time is your friend. Spend more time with the baby. Observe them in the ED. Admit for observation if you're uh, still concerned but can't pinpoint necessarily on something. Don't dismiss their concerns lightly. And now I want to come to something else um, that I want to add to the podcast. We often say, okay, we start with the resuscitation, we do our ABCs, a few things, and then we call for help or call for a senior. But what if help doesn't come? What if you are it? What comes next? What do you need to think about? Um, Rocky wasn't feeding well, looked sick upon arrival. You went through your differential. Infection was the most probable. You started resuscitating. Perfect. You gave your 10 cc per kilogram. You start your antibiotics. And then what? Things you have to uh, ask yourself is what? What response are you looking for? That's your first thing. And then what if you don't get that response you're looking for? What are your next steps? The response you are looking for is basically signs of improved perfusion in this case. So you're looking at the capillary refill. We do central. I also like to do peripheral uh, capillary refill. Pulses. Uh, tone. And what was the tone when he first came versus tone now? Again, remember you're examining the normal babies before hundreds of babies to make sure that you know what the normal baby's tone should look like. Movement, color, breathing. And vital signs, respiratory rate, SATs, a heart rate. And ideally, you'd like to get a blood pressure. Sometimes very tricky in the small um, in infants. And you also want to make sure that you're actually using the right cuff size. And then, so you've, you're, those are the things you're looking for to see if there's any improvement in your AD. And what if he's not getting better? This is where you kind of have to go back into your mental checklist. Is it because he needs a wider coverage of antibiotics? It was mentioned uh, previously by Stephen also that uh, should he be should you add vancomycin, gentamicin? Should you be thinking of uh, acyclovir, or could this be something else? Also mentioned in the podcast before: uh, cardiac, metabolic, non-accidental trauma. So let me just touch quickly based upon these metabolic. You'll be able to see that from the labs you're sending. Typically, you also check for the genitalia. Don't forget for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. It's not part of our screening in Ireland, so you need to think about that in a baby coming in in shock and treat accordingly. Uh, a head CT may be something you have to consider. In a baby who's not responding to the steps, he's not getting, he got the, gave the 10 per kilo, you need to give another 10 per kilo. Again, you're giving some more fluids. You consider metabolic, you consider other things. What else may be going on? They could be bleeding in their head. There could be non-accidental trauma. And they could bleed enough in baby's head actually to cause severe anemia and shock. And finally, cardiac. For me, it's my little pet peeve. I think I've just seen uh, enough to put it high on my differential in the neonate in shock. But for me, if a baby's not responding to my infection treatment fast, 
cardiac is the first thing I'm thinking of. Why, especially at this age, is because the PDA is, it's just the time the PDA is closing. And not all um, prenatal echoes will find all uh, cardiogenic, um, uh, sorry, cardiac abnormalities. And uh, when the PDA is closing, a coarct or some variation of the coarct will then present and present in shock. And so it was mentioned that you're checking pulses, femoral pulses, but it's not, you're not just checking pulses to um, check for circulation that they're perfusing. You also want to check that they really that they have bilateral strong femoral pulses because if they're not there, you have to think of a coarct. Or if they're too weak, you have to think of a coarct. Um, although I know cardiac problems can be complex and it's a bit daunting to think, oh my God, they have a congenital heart disease. But from our perspective in the ED, really, you can break it down pretty simply. What you're assessing for is femoral pulses. You can easily do pre and post ductal sats, saturations, chest x-ray, you're looking for cardiomegaly. Um, and it doesn't, isn't going to be a subtle thing. Don't mix it up with the thymus and ECG. And if you're comfortable with a bit of pocus uh, echo, you can do that to look a little a bit of the I don't expect you to diagnose any, basically, diseases from there, but you can see how the function is and the contractions are. Um, but that's obviously not uh, essential here. If any of these are abnormal, or if the baby is just not responding to your fluids as you'd expect him to, and the antibiotics, prostaglandin is the life savior here. I'm, and if you're in a community ED, with no access to cardiologists, nobody, by the time they're going to end up in a picture somewhere else where you can make sure, it'll, it may be too late. Start prostaglandin. Start it now. It will save a life. It can always be stopped later on. Not a big deal. So I think kind of that's my points about um, Rocky. Again, not much EBM here because really for me, it's more about that sick baby. And the take-home messages I will have would be, one, listen to the parents and your nurse, of course. Two, examine well babies. Examine, examine, examine normal base so you can recognize the variant and the sick one. And if the baby looks sick, trust yourself, he or she is sick and do something about it. Take the vague complaints seriously. Just try to break them down your kind of mental checklist questions to something you can work with. And then think as an ED physician, what's the most dangerous thing and what's the most probable thing that may happen? Four, feeding is the baby's main job. Details are key here. Get the baseline and check for any variation from it, but a persistent variation from it. And finally, constantly reassess and adapt your management according to the new data you're getting. Don't anchor on the one thing you thought about. I was also asked to give some advice for uh, NCHEs who are becoming more and more senior. Um, I guess I have a, there's a lot we can talk about here. My first thing will always be, though, don't try to be a hero. I know now you're the senior. You feel you have to be more in charge. You should know it all. It's okay. All of us, there's always something we don't know. There's always a time we're going to need for help. Ask for help early. There's nothing wrong with it. Two. As mentioned before, listen to your nurses and parents. Listen to your juniors. When your junior and stage is coming, asking you for help, wanting to run a patient by you, why is he running this patient, not another one? Make sure that you are answering all their questions. I always ask, Am I? did I miss something or are you comfortable with the answer I just gave you? Give them the chance to open up to you. If need be, go and examine that patient with them. Show them the abnormality, teach them to them. They are going to become your peers. They will be taking care of your children. 
learn to say no and set limits. And that's very important in the, also in the ED. And that's not just for, um, in terms of your academic life or other, that's also with the flow in the ER. And nurses some may just come and throw you charts. This is a sick patient, please go see this one, please go see this one. Of course, you're gonna go, but it's not your job to have to sit and spend hours and take the full history and talk, get a referral. It's okay to say, okay, I've done this, so give it to a junior. That doesn't mean you are abusing anybody else. It just means that you are recognizing what it is that you're also needed to do in that ED. And that's a lot of supervision and flow and making sure that the sick ones are dealt with uh, early and fast. Another thing is get familiar with your recess space on your first shift. You're all going to be moving to new places. The recess is the most critical place. Look at the PEDS guidelines that are up there. And before your shifts, you can't remember how to do a certain procedure. YouTube is awesome. Use it. Five, remember, you are now a role model, so act accordingly. That's all I have to say on that one. Always remember who your patient is, who you are here to care for and advocate for, and that's the child. Even if the parent is difficult, is impolite, is aggressive, Ultimately, you are taking care for, of the child, and that's what you have to, who you have to advocate for. And sometimes that means we have to swallow a little bit more than we would like. And finally, unrelated to uh, this case, well, all of it is a bit unrelated, but something really I've learned over the years, pick your battles. The idea, as you know, is a fast-paced, chaotic world, but we love it. That's why we've all chosen to work there. It's also full of humans and personalities, some a bit stronger and some a bit meaner than others. You will always have a different opinion than a colleague, than a nurse, than a parent, than someone, a surgeon, the, whoever other you're talking to. But not every disagreement has to become a conflict. And most of the time in medicine, honestly, there is no right or wrong. Most of the time there is a middle ground. There is a lot of gray. Some people make it sound that it is a black or white, but again, most of the time there isn't. If someone prefers a certain medication, as long as you don't see it's going to harm the child, why not? Um, when the nurse tells you that's our maximum dose here, fine, that's the maximum dose here. You can always redose later if you need to. Ultimately, your patient comes first, and we should all be working towards that. Um, that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. A huge thanks to Rasha for that. The guys managed the case really well, but what I loved about Rasha's coverage is that she covers the ultimate question. What if there's no improvement? What if you've given the fluids and you've given the antibiotics and you've covered what you think is everything? What if you're awaiting more senior help, but there's a delay and ultimately what's next? So to recap a few things about what she said there. One, we need to listen to the parents and our own colleagues on the floor as well. But we need to trust our gut. Two, examine the normal as much as possible. Three, turn the vague into the specific. If a history or presentation seems like it doesn't make much sense, it's our job to make sense of it. And four, don't anchor to one diagnosis. Keep it broad and reassess, reassess, reassess. I hope you all got a lot out of that. For our bonus segment that'll be coming soon, I grabbed another PEM consultant, Dr. Connor Davis, who's involved in the IPATH service, and who talks us through paediatric critical care and inter-hospital transfers. I loved it. Don't miss it. Remember to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple or Google, and follow us on social media. 
We post helpful infographics there thanks to our amazing intern junior producers. Give them a retweet or a repost. It goes a long way. Until next time, may your coffee be strong. TCR, out.